right, folks, look, it's Rogue News Roundtable, and we have with us the most amazing group of guys that I've ever met in my entire life. We're talking about, of course, the incomparable Joaquin Phoenix. He's here live. <laughs> the incomparable Joaquin Phoenix, live, Flores, Flores. in person, in studio, and I'm elated. You need to get a hold of Joaquin. You need to follow him over on his Telegram, at The New Resistance. I will post the links in the description box. Join his Telegram. Joaquin, you probably have like 50,000 people in your Telegram already, and it's growing. You don't have to like cut it off or start like three different Telegram channels at once, man. I have to I have to split off Telegram. I'm capped at 30,000, and I don't know if I can start other uh, ones or what. I got to check with legal counsel. But basically, it's like you can't be an influencer yeah. until I'm done with what I need to do because they just – they basically, it's arbitrary. But if you look like in the U.K., you look at like court rulings or in the U.S., They've landed at this number that like 30,000 is like the lowest criteria to be like a, you know, like that they can call you an influencer. And what that means is that you're a public person. And what that means in turn is that like things like defamation work differently. So sure. It's yeah. Gotcha. Understood. So Joaquin Flores is here. We have Matthew Arrett himself, the brain trust, AKA Fireblood. Matthew Arrett is here. That's going to be your new name, man. Fireblood. Be, be, because I, I I drink too much coffee, folks. Okay. I'm gonna be Joaquin Phoenix, and he's gonna be Matt Fireblood, wait, 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 and I'm wait, gonna wait. you're gonna yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna, gonna be uh I'm gonna be running Phoenix. That's it. I'm gonna be the running gorilla. We have like a Native American podcast right here. <laughs> <laughs> Fireblood Phoenix, running gorilla. The only one normal here is Alex Craner. Alex, he's probably he's he's gonna join us in a few minutes. He's just handling some things. Uh, with that being said, folks, guys, uh, what do you guys want to talk about? Where, where, there's so many things going on. Joaquin, you've been on, like, you've been putting on a clinic with what's happening right. in Ukraine. An absolute yeah. clinic. And it's like, I remember the whole thing that you did with uh, when um, that whole um, um, Wagner, the so-called Wagner coup was happening. And you're like, no, nah, that's not a coup. This is going to happen. It's going to be A, B, C, and D. And exactly as how you said it is exactly how it played out. I was just like, oh, my God. And my buddy Nick, who's a friend of b both of ours, uh, he was like, hey, you, you need to uh, – or I'll, you know, I'll go Cowboy. He's like, go. Oh, Joaquin's been talking about it. He's been hitting it on on all the points. I mean, there's so much happening. So whatever you guys want to start with, Joaquin, I guess we'll start with you. Um, go for yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to have Alex come on, he's going to have great insights also with things that are happening in the Balkans right now, like with Serbia – in Kosovo, but that's just like, uh, you know, excrement that's just hit the fan, yeah. like another blow up of that. And then we've got like, uh, of course, in Ukraine, um, the big thing happening now is as we had been forecasting that the pressure is mounting on Zelensky. Is he going to step down? Is he going to have an election? Is that a distraction? You know, uh, what does that mean? What does Russia want? Do they want Zelensky in? Do they want him out? Right. In other words, if they had a choice, what works out for them? Why is the U.S. kind of putting this pressure all of a sudden, like on issues about the SBU is running torture camps? Why is why are the Western media, mainstream media, why is the State Department uh, talking about things like Zelensky should have elections? Right. So it's very, very weird. Um, you know, so uh, I, I would say that that is one of the most startling developments. And of course, like for folks who um, are interested in kind of some of the the metapolitical aspects of this, and this is like a subject that Matt also does tremendous research on, 
um, the occult history of some of these organizations. Um, and Marina Abramovich, to kind of bring that up, has been just tapped by Zelensky to head up some effort regarding children and ensuring you know the well-being of children and the things oh, that they yes, learn. Yes, yes, very yeah. important because you know Marina, a, a a a barren witch, is really concerned about about children. Uh, you know, I don't know if you knew that. Right, that. right. That's why she has so many children of her own. Right. That's that's why she's dedicated her life to raising children. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's uh. Yeah, other people's children. She's very happy to to get involved with, though. Yeah, very, very excited. Absolutely, it's insane. That 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 is just really disturbing. Eh? I mean, I I don't even know exactly what her position is, but it's something to do with uh, an ambassador in charge of safety of children in Ukraine. Like, what does that even entail, other than the obvious questions when a Satanist is in charge? Is right. charged, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mind will go certain places. Uh, well, what is Putin charged with? What is the actual ICC charge against Putin? Mm, abuse on children for, for, for removing children. Oh. From, uh, right. So this is projection. Their method is to project onto their opponent the thing that they're guilty of. Right? Like, why wow. would you need to remove children from a war zone? Right? Right. From orphanages? Right? Why would you need to do that? Well, one reason is they could get bombed. Another reason is that you have a country like Ukraine, whose government and intelligence service have been involved in one of the highest rates of like child and human trafficking in the world. And uh, you have Clinton Foundation involvement in Ukraine around this as well. So how you doing, Alex? Hey, guys. <laughs> I, had to, I had to change devices. It's OK. You live in Monaco. You're fashionably late. It's allowed. <laughs> if 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 you're if you're if your young children are are in earshot, though, you just jumped into the part of the conversation where we're talking I, uh, about Marina Abramovich's satanic influence. Over no, that's her okay. Head. That's yeah. okay, Matt. I, I yeah. tied them. I tied them, and I put some tape on their mouths. Oh, that's good. the Abramovich method. It works. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we shouldn't laugh. <laughs> but, but I mean, you you have to laugh or cry, right? And I mean, yeah, no, it's uh, we're we're laughing in the face of the devil is what we're doing. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what the the and then we were saying there's stuff popping off with like Serbia and Kosovo, and that Alex would have a good perspective on that. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, it's uh, I I I think it's uh, just one of the potential crisis flashpoints. Uh, that the people who are losing across the board are now trying hard to detonate because you know if you're if you're this is like a gambler's ruin you know if you're losing everything now you're uh, you're ready to throw the kitchen sink at the problem and any war any war will be good you know uh, Armenia Azerbaijan Kosovo Serbia uh, you know, you name it, pa Pakistan, India, Kashmir, um, anything just to worsen the crisis. I think that, you know, if you observe what's happening and you realize that they lost in Ukraine, I mean, they lost period in Ukraine. There's no hope of uh, reversing this. And uh, they keep escalating. They, they keep doing these uh, stupid, silly gestures that will only worsen things and not they will not change the they will not change the outcome of war 
you know, if you were, if you were constructive, you would at some point sit down and think like, we got to cut our losses. We got to sit down at the table and negotiate the best peace deal. We have to negotiate the best possible peace deal that we can, that we can, we can get. Instead, it seems that everything they're doing is uh, worsening the situation. And there's only one explanation for this. Because Okay, so one explanation could be that they're stupid, which is plausible, which is probable even. But the other, I think, more likely explanation is that they are absolutely desperate and are try trying to do everything possible to provoke a bigger war, a wider war, to try to uh, get uh, NATO nations to close ranks and to maybe try to mobilize some kind of a, a collective West whole of society push into this war. And this would be, you know, the ideal way for them to deal with the crisis at home and to, uh, to blame everything on the external enemy, you know, because, you know, the, either the markets are going to crash yeah. Or we're going into a like a deflationary death spiral, or we're going into an accelerated inflation. Yeah. Nothing good is on the horizon, mm. and they're responsible for it. They made it. They own it. So you know, a big war against Russia or China or preferably both, regardless of the fact that we're going to be defeated would be a good way to sweep all that under the carpet, to cover everything with the flag of patriotism and to say we're fighting for the good thing and the people, uh, our enemies are the evil ones and they are to blame for all of our problems and we have to defeat them and then shove as many men as possible into the meat grinder, grinder get rid of the population, um, persuade everybody to start eating uh, crickets, yeah. And, and cockroaches and usher in the new normal, build back better and all of those things. So I think that's the, you know, the war is actually on domestic populations, not on Russia so much or China. Right. I yeah. agree with that. I mean, when, when you look at the golden billion, uh, as, uh, as Joseph Burrell would like to call the West, the golden billion, the, the golden billion's not doing so well. They're all broke. They're all insolvent. Their economies are hollowed out. They have no industry. I mean, my God, I mean, NATO has depleted itself uh, from any sort of munitions that they have trying to fight the Russians because you can't fight a real industrial power. And I agree with you, Alex. You know, when I, when I sit down with my hedge fund guys, I sit around with guys who are, you know, running hedge funds, private equity, this, that, and the other. Going into 2025, none of us, and this is a scary thought, none of us have any sort of data metric we don't even know. We know 2024 is going to be a hell of a year. 2025 is is a, is a great unknown for all of us, man. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Where the real population, they just said that we've crossed the 8 billion mark. And um, it's an interesting concept to think about population because of the different um, processes that drive population recording. Um, you know, at the local level of a county registrar of a hospital at the municipal level, level, then to the province or the state. And then only then, you know, like if there's some national accounting 
often those are like averages they're based upon modeling and not necessarily like a head count right so if there if if local governments uh ha or even hospitals that starting at that level have some kind of impetus where they receive money to record births um based upon population then it can have a some kind of distorting effect on what the real population number is but i would expect it's distorting it upwards somewhere and i don't know if that's five percent twenty percent i mean i don't have a metric to know but um i would entertain the possibility that we could have you know seven billion five billion four billion i i don't know uh, but there's because there's so much of an uh impetus you know even developing countries in africa which they say has a billion over a billion people in the continent uh, but developing countries in africa have a strong impetus to report population growth because they get per capita you know um funds for human development for fighting poverty and things like this and um and and yet there's another thing that's also pushing this narrative of population because so much of what they're talking about with the carbon footprint kind of building on what alex is saying with the uh, resetism and build back better um that they're they're almost making the case for that population should be reduced i mean they're saying that people are the carbon and they're saying well and we're making the carb we're the carbon in the carbon equation and they're saying you know reduce the carbon and alex is pointing out quite rightly how these conflicts can be used to do like and i hate to use the word of calling uh, of, a, of a type but um yeah it's very interesting um when uh, i look Hawking, at that's the that's the word they use they use that word between themselves. You know, I, I, I know secondhand stories where, uh, you know, some of these people between themselves in these cocktail parties in New York, uh, you know, they talk about the great calling. Uh, it's going to be time to call the herd. That's what yeah. they say between themselves. And then they chuckle a little bit because, you know, it's up to them. And I entirely agree with you about the, the head counts. I... I started doubting the, doubting them at some point. I don't know when, you know, like I thought like, well, when they tell us that there's 7 billion people in the world, how do they really know? You know, who counted them? I didn't count them. I have no idea. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think, what if it's, on, there's only five, 5 billion of us or six? What if there's yeah. no, nothing near 8 billion? You know, this uh, obsession with overpopulation of the planet that they need to save because it's somehow, you know, their assignment. Uh, this obsession didn't start at 7 billion. It didn't start at 8 billion either. It started more than a hundred years ago when we were less than a billion. Yeah. Okay. Hitler was obsessed with overpopulation and the need to reduce the population in the world. It's just that however many of us there are, it's too many for them. You know, they just like for us to go away. Right. And, you know, killing us is one way of making us go away. It would be better if they could hack, hack us, take over our free will, and turn us into a different species, like, uh, you know, worker termites that they have complete control over. That's how degenerate these people are, that they're actually, you know, uh, working out these problems. Uh, you know, like they invented these problems imagining them and then they invent solutions and yeah. you know there's there's no re there's no line that they don't want to cross and this is who who we're up against uh, uh, up against 
So, you know, everything is up in the air. Uh, nothing, nothing they tell us can be taken as truth, even, even remotely. Well, on, on that issue, too, like um, Thomas Malthus himself was already raving about the overpopulation crisis in 1799. Yeah. He was foreseeing that by the turn of the 19th century, uh, we would have upwards of potentially a billion and a half people, and that would be unsupportable. So we have to act preventatively now in like 1802, you know, to try to mitigate the crisis in future population issues that would, would be the result of the fact that people reproduce geometrically, he says, and, and, and agriculture only reproduces or grows arithmetically. So you could foresee scientifically when that crisis was going to be. And of course, just like Yuval Harari and the current batch of Neo-Malthusians, they make no account for the, the role of the resource that creates all resources, this immaterial but real existent thing called the human mind that can make discoveries. They, because a mathematician can't weigh it, you know, you, you can't, if you're a British empiricist, you can't take the mind or a thought or an idea and cut it into pieces and dissect it and weigh it and, and you know, get all these different metrics you could put on charts. You can't do that. So they get very uncomfortable. And they just want to take what already exists in, in the material world, which ironically comes from the consequence of a whole ton of creative discoveries that they could not have made before they were born. But they're, they're just like, OK, now it's ended. All of the current knowledge that we have scientifically and the resources that we we call resources instead of like, you know, what what defines iron from being just a rock to being iron as an as an ore that you use, you know, at some point it was just a rock. So it had it required certain discoveries that humans made that changed its its identity from a rock being something useful as a, as a resource. And they're just like, okay, well, whatever we have now, that's all that can ever be. And they put like the end of history sort of stopgap, and they're like, okay, now it's just a matter of trying to control the the scarcity, right? In some some age where everybody plays by the same rules that we create, and if you break those rules, we got to kill you. But you know, those rules have no bearing on, on actual human nature. They're just projecting from their own bestial identities onto humanity, saying that's what humanity is. So we're all supposed to believe that, you know, human beings are just these, these animals, uh, viruses, even cancers that can just destroy, can't create. That's all we are. So you get little kids thinking maybe that's all we are. Useless eaters. Hmm? As Kissinger says, useless eaters we are. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And it's like, no, and there's in fact, as you were speaking, Matt, it's uh, I, and reflecting on what Alex was saying, I recall, and I think everyone has seen this by now, that clip of one of the members, representatives of the Club of Rome speaking about overpopulation. And I think he said a word to the effect of, well, if we get the population down to two billion, then we can it's sustainable. World population is sustainable but people will live like in very cramped conditions and certain dietary regulations. But if we can get the population down to 1 billion, then maybe we can even like live all right. And this is like what has been open. This is not a conspiracy. This is a real organization. It's called the Club of Rome. And, and I, I, it's interesting that um, sometimes in trying to, to outreach or, or to do, you know, uh, work in public, people might think that these are, fictional or that there's lore around this or that there's like that this is a, a, a mythology or conspiracy theories. Um, the Bilderberg Club, the Trilateral Commission, the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, um, various 
NGOs or uh, intergovernmental organizations, these different uh, organizations that uh, uh, are part of the interlocking directorate. These are publicly registered they're, they're, and they're publicly known and they have public spokespeople that, that make public statements. And among those statements is that world population should be down to one billion. And it's, it's and thinking, reflecting on what Alex and, and you're talking about, you mentioned Malthus in 1759. Was that it? Talking about 1799. Yeah. 1799. Forgive me, 1799. Note to self. And looking at the conflicts in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Alex mentioned uh, flare-ups in, uh, you know, India, Pakistan, uh, potentially even deeper, uh, Kosovo, Serbia, or Bosnia, uh, Serbia, etc. That these flashpoints, um, and I would also argue um, Europe, and Alex is absolutely right, and anyone who says it is right, that they don't really think that they can defeat Russia. But you know, Europe is such a low-hanging fruit, and I'm trying to. What I'm working on now is tracking the growth of European capital, whether it's intertwined or semi-independent from the American, like the first round of strong American takeover following World War II. To what extent, you know, is the euro somewhat independent from the dollar? To what extent, uh, maybe driven even by European industry as opposed to transatlantic finance? To what extent is European industry have needs to be connected to Russia, right, for energy that makes sense? Right now, Germany, compared to G7 countries, is paying 1.75% or 1.7 times, 1.7 times what the median G7 country is paying for energy. How can Germany be competitive? It's supposed to be a very competitive economy or at least very industrious and innovative. So how can you maintain this? In, in light of this conflict with Russia. And it's clear to me, and Alex is right, and I know you've spoken to it too, Matt, that um, they don't think they can win this. But Europe is a very good low-hanging fruit for them. I mean, they can actually go in and try to re-seize any of this breakaway capital from European capital centers, excuse me. Joaquin, yeah. I, I, I don't I don't really know what's what's there anymore. You know, because uh, we have a we have a financial system that's an inverted pyramid scheme. Yeah. Which is which is based on, on you know like <clears throat> a very little real capital. Yeah. Um do you mean like industry, land? Of property, real estate, capital, or yes, yes, not money, not money. Yeah, and the yeah. money is uh, money is a big speculative bubble, and uh, European banking, I think, I think they're leveraged by about 30, 30 times yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. The American banks are a little bit less leveraged. European banks are lever leveraged about thirty times that we know of. We don't know the effect of the loss of Ukraine and the loss of Africa, how that's going to worsen things, but it, it is going to worsen things considerably. And so um, it's a very, very collateral starved system. And it's, it's not adding collateral, it's losing collateral. 100%. But, it, but, you know, like it desperately needs to grow because, you, you, you know, like this bond, it, it's a, 
the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme and it's only stable so long as it grows. And in order for it to grow in any kind of credible way to retain, you know, the participants confidence, it needs to keep adding collateral, but it, it's, it's really struggling to do so. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's this real fear that, that at some point it all unravels very quickly. And yeah. their, you know, like their behavior is indicating that we're approaching that point because they're, they are themselves panicked. They're, their measures, their, their policies indicate that they are panicked. <laughs> I'm convinced that in 2020, in March of 2020, with the, with the pandemic, that the central bankers have staged the coup, that they have completely taken over uh, economic and monetary policy. Now, the, the governments are just talking heads. They're not even, they, they don't even have any idea what to do. And so one thing that has happened is that, um, you know, suddenly all these imminent banking crises, you know, like in 2015, 16, 19, we were talking about an imminent banking crisis. You know, Deutsche Bank was going to fail any day. Um, yeah. UBS was going to fail any day. Royal Bank of Scotland, whatever it's called today. Uh, was this gonna... was in October, October of 2019, uh, August, September, October 2019. September was, uh, yeah, September, it started to become pretty obvious. We had a um, meeting at the um, Jackson, Hole. Jackson Hole, where all the bankers were coming out in front of the, you know, in front of the, on the press, the pressers, like looking gray and green and issuing very panicked statements that something was broken. And then uh, uh, at that, that very same time started the big uh, repo, Yep. Panic, and then uh, and then you know event two hundred one and the and the pandemic, and then um, you know once the pandemic got going, the thing that kind of uh, for me gave it away. Oh, hello, Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, my friend. Ah, the, the, Glad I was able to make it. Yes, partially. Excellent that you did. Welcome. Uh, so we were talking about the, the start of everything in the 2020, uh, the, the repogeddon. And then, you know, in um, the thing that to me is one of the one of the important documents was the uh, op-ed written by Mario Draghi in the Financial Times. I think that was 29 March. And I think that that pretty much gave away that they've they've taken over. And then uh, three days before that, uh, the Federal Reserve did away with the reserve requirements for uh, uh, issuance of credit. So the reserve requirement went to zero, which means that there's no restriction on, on money creation anymore. They could, they could just create money completely backed by nothing and put it into the, into the circulation. In Europe, or you just mean quantitative? No, no, that's the no, that's the Federal Reserve. I don't know if, if that's the case for Europe, but I think even even if it isn't officially, probably unofficially, it is. And so, uh, what you know, the result is we didn't have any banking failure, in spite of the fact that you know the 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 pandemic radically worsened the economic conditions, and even before that, you know we were expecting an imminent banking collapse. So nothing happened. There's only one explanation that the, the central banks, 
are now uh, backstopping all the bad debts on the on on their books. They're buying bonds of the of the failing zombie corporations, and uh, that tells you the end game. The end game is going to be a collapse of the currency, and I think that we can pretty much see that the first one to go uh, will be the ones that started QE first, which is Bank of Japan and the Japanese yen, yep. followed by ECB, followed by B, uh, uh, um, you know the European the euro followed by Bank of England and the pound. And then I think the last one uh, will be the the dollar and the Federal Reserve System. Yeah. That follows the, that follows the whole history of, of this crisis starting around 97 with the, uh, with the uh, Asian market crisis and was at 97. And then um, interesting to, to try to, follow the patterns of, of uh, finance crisis mm -hmm. because you had, you know, the, whatever they pumped into that, then we had what, 2000, 2001, the dot-com bubble crisis. Yep. yep. And then we move on to the 2007, 2008 bubble of too big to fail, uh, housing right, market yeah. crisis and the junk derivative Prices, derivatives, and then at that time, Europe. I remember changed their. It was the first very big change in a long time to ECB or Euro creation regulation, where they um, began to purchase um, these um, <clears throat> so-called toxic derivatives, and uh, they were wrapped up with with assets that were clean. Uh, and they had to change the regulations to allow these to be purchased without that really verifying that they were sound. So then that takes us to what we had 2008, but they've been, but ever since they started doing the quantitative easing, they like never stopped really. No. Yeah. So, so then we get to, well, then we get the longest and biggest after that. everything bubble we ever had. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And they're all daisy-chained. You know, Alex, you made a point of uh, of talking about how the euro banks are about 30 times leveraged. Yeah, they're about 30 to almost 40 times leveraged, right? Now, we got to remember, ever since the Big Bang, what happened when the uh, City of London got deregulated, one of the things that the City of London introduced to the world, the ultimate drug, that they've introduced to the financial markets was what? Rehypothecation. In the UK, it is rehypothecated. Accounts are rehypothecated to infinity. Yes, okay? come look. And and Wall Street wanted to do the same thing. Wall Street is is, is capped at about 120 uh, times. Yes. Is your sound on? Yes. M Martin, could you? Yes. Martin, we can hear you. Martin's good. Go ahead. Um, First of all, uh, in a way, I, I don't know why you wanted or needed me on here, because A, this is not my specialized area, and B, listening to Wacky and Alex is always an education. It's not an education I want, because what they have to say is so terrifying and <laughs> gloomy and documented. So my, my, the, the first 
contribution I, I make or can make is I agree, of course, with both of your brilliant and honest um, assessments, and I wish I did not, and I wish you, neither of you had to make them, because what you are saying <laughs> is ought to be on... Um, it, it's to me, even at my elderly age, it is appalling and astonishing that the BBC and CBS and CNN and Fox too, of course, that none of them are reporting on this regularly every night. It is exactly what the public's. If democracy was real, if publics were being informed on the scale they need to be informed, if pressure was being brought to bear on representatives in the parliament and in the Congress, and that's the way democracy is supposed to work. We, uh, although these people are supposed to exercise their own judgment, they're supposed to be informed and to also respond to the fears of the people. And if the people are drugged, then they cannot pass on their fears to the representatives. So the whole system is broken down. But it starts with the media. And what you guys are all doing is trying to actually save the system, giving it a last second uh, warning call. You are sounding the sirens. Yeah. You are sounding the sirens of crisis. I mean, what Alex and, and Wakim have just pointed out is not just the coming uh, global fiscal disaster, but where it is going to happen and the sequence in which it is going to happen, which is of crucial importance. And the only thing I, ha uh, the, I have only two things uh, I can offer to this. First, uh, to agree and endorse with both your assessments. And I wish I didn't have to. You understand. <laughs> I know you wish you didn't have to give them. But uh, uh, I completely support your assessments and they are terrifying and they are real. And I think a very key point, too, is going back to the Big Bang, which I remember as a very young guy, I was sent by the Washington Times to report on this at the time. And all anyone in any of the media in Britain and America could see was the good side of this. The good side of this. There was uh, nobody wanted to see what it was. It, it, we should have seen was even then inevitably going to lead to. But of course, that was the fruit of the poisonous tree, as they say in American legal terminology. Unlimited, unregulated flow of finance and manipulation, starting in London and spreading out through other centers, leads, as my old teacher Isaiah Berlin said, what is freedom if it's only freedom for the big fish to eat the little fish? Mm. And that mm. was the kind of freedom that has been spreading around the world for, since 1986. The unregulated freedom of the big fish to eat the little fish. Mm -hmm. now, I only have one more point to say, though. And again, this is a direct consequence from your brilliant and remorseless analysis, Alex. And it is this. You, uh, the yen is the first to go. And really, the yen has been propped up and, and staggering at death's door for reasons we all know both global and internal to Japan, for 30 years now. But what will happen after the yen goes? I predict that in far quicker sequence than happened in the 1930s, democracy as we know it, which has been genuine in Japan for more than 70 years, will either disappear or completely reorient, that the Naruhito era will kick into full gear, and that Japan will follow South Africa in joining the BRICS. Japan will follow South Africa in joining the BRICS. The one final thought I'll add to this is something, again, that is thought crime in the United States. 
And that is that all our policies to destroy Russia economically and isolate Russia geopolitically over the past nine years have backfired, as all of us around this table knew they would and warned in vain. And we, were, of course, we were not alone. There were many others saying it likely, but we, all of us, they tried to marginalize. But not only did they backfire, as a consequence of that backfire, it is the United States and Britain and the Europe, Western European allies who are isolated in the world. Saudi Arabia has joined with Iran, which was inconceivable, and now makes common cause an OPEC with Russia, which is unprecedented in practical terms. South Africa has now joined uh, 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 has always been in the BRICS, but now it is, is joined Russia and China for military exercises. Yeah. And that divides the world. That means that American sea power cannot operate freely in the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and be interchanged. They have to project it from Australia and they cannot get around the Cape of Good Hope because in any global conflict, China and Russia will be able to count on South Africa as a strategic ally as well as an economic ally. And that is enormous. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, yes. Very good. Gentlemen, what do you guys think about what's happening? I mean, one of the one of the big highlight themes here is that as the empire collapses, they're getting desperate. They're trying to create shooting wars all over the place. They're trying to create as much havoc as possible because for them, better to have a little bit of something than nothing at all. The yes, reason- I mean it's you know, Alex and Martin just you know, Alex just said that he thought that the first uh next crisis in terms of where we might expect a uh, economic crisis to first rear its head would be Japan, and um, is that right? Yes. And and Martin, you also said the same, and you're looking and uh, it's interesting because they um, up until just a week ago, the present Japanese government in the cabinet had a few uh, pro-Chinese people. And they just had a rearrangement in, in their cabinet and they've put in someone that is like more amenable to what the U.S. interests directly now are vis-a-vis Taiwan. So they've taken the, the pro-Chinese person out and put in someone who's had to step down from their hobby where they have a paramilitary organization of United Japanese and Taiwanese. So... Um, now, but I, I think that even though this looks like a pivot away from China, bear in mind that this was actually just, and this is a, a not an anti-American government per se. They had pro-Chinese people in the cabinet, which means that that's what they wanted. And this little change right now is just a politicization to meet some, almost like in connection with the information war, of the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive, but I think, thinking about it broadly, it does come back to the fact that when you look at supply line security issues and you look at where Japan is and where reliable fuel is going to come from, and looking at the crisis that, and and I don't mean to run interference here for Tojo or Hirohito, but when you look at the pinch that Japan was put into in the 30s and how they had to manage their 
energy in and outputs, um, they did not have a, a sovereign footing to do so. And they, then they had to basically almost try to expand to avoid collapsing, almost like ancient Rome on hyperspeed. So I, I'm looking at leading up to 1930 to 1941. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to see, and I, I think that's all right. I think you guys have it exactly figured out. I'm going to have to take some notes, forgive me. Well, you have to the danger of the um, the Straits of Malacca being um, being disrupted as well. I, I know that that's a big a big point that the Chinese and, and many of the uh, many of those, those geopolitical planners were thinking in terms of the the multi. Is it a technical difficulty for Matt? Should we all test our audio? Yeah, I'm, I think, is Matt there? Is, did he freeze? I think Matt freeze. Yes, on my yes, screen. Uh, it's Matt's connection. I, I, I muted myself and I'm talking like an idiot. I apologize. Oh, I'm like, are we all frozen? No. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I have a copyright on that fee. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, real quick, uh, we have a situation again, how they're trying to foment what's going on with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yeah, you know, all these conflicts happening all over the world. Um, uh, Alex Craner, what's your take on with everything that's occurring right now as the West breaks? As right now, they're trying to save face with the disaster that is Ukraine. What's next? Yeah, what's next? Oh, South China Seas. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think. I think not. Um, yeah. You know. I. I observed what's been going on in the South China Sea and with China, uh, and I, obviously, you know, it's very difficult to interpret. But you know, over the last six months, we had, um, you know, a Biden administration uh, saber rattling. Uh, we had provocative visits to Taiwan. We had Anthony Blinken going to Beijing and making a mess of it, and then we had. Uh, Janet Yellen go there for, and she stayed four days yeah. it was a bit mysterious because we don't really know what she was there discussing about but we did have a temporary reversal of Chinese dumping the US treasuries yeah. which is I think what she went there for mm. um, and then after her uh, when was it last month uh, Henry Kissinger went to Beijing another head scratcher and what you know it seems to me that the secret messaging is that we don't really want a war we just need to tighten the screws at home and we need an external enemy so you know the politics is uh, talking the ugly talk they're trash talking you but we don't really mean it, so right. don't get too alarmed about it. And then I think that, again, my conviction, because if you really wanted a war against China, you would probably be preparing for it. You wouldn't be hiring drag queens to be spokespersons for the, for the Navy. 
you wouldn't be completely destroying your military's um, morale. I've uh, I've spoken to people who have told me that they have multiple reports of American officers re, 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 refusing up. How do you call it when you get a higher rank? Yeah, uh, promotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, refusing promotions and uh, uh, several several people declined the rank of admiral. I tried to understand what that was about. I asked, and they told me, well, basically, you know, uh, it's just, you know, responsibility and exposure um, and for for not much added uh, value from, from a personal standpoint. But they said that the, 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 the situation with politics and morale in the U.S. military is really, really alarming. It's really dismal. You wouldn't be doing this if you thought you were going to fight China. Also, you wouldn't be depleting your ar arsenal completely by sending all of your stuff over to Ukraine to be to be lost in the in the and destroyed by the Russians. So obviously they don't they don't mean it. I, I think they need it to sweep under the carpet the domestic problems and uh, and to bamboozle the American people about the external enemy to be able to deal with dissent quick and easy, to be able to, you know, accuse their uh, political opponents of, of, uh, of lack of patriotism, of being traitors, of uh, dealing with the end, you know, all of these ugly things, and to kind of consolidate uh, the, political, um, uh, the political situation at home. And so I think that this is the direction that they want to take. This is what, you know, like they want to kind of softly do away with free speech, with democracy and usher in a totalitarianism. And for that, they need an external enemy. And I think that at this point, you know, we're getting to the, to the level of Orwell's 1984. The war doesn't even have to be real. You just have to kind of create the psychosis so that people think that the war is real and that the people are under this, uh, you know, constant state of uh, emergency. Something terrible is going on and we have to accept all these new rules and eat bugs and forget free speech. And, uh, you know, uh, anyway, so that's where I think we're going. We're going, but I think that in this respect, uh, the American people, have a lot a lot of say in this you know they don't have to passively acquiesce and let it all happen martin i'm sorry i'm i've been no I'm, not at all uh, I, I, martin before you uh say something um alex made a point about you know about admirals people not wanting to be admirals or being promoted to the rank of admiral uh alex i want to clarify there is a rank of admiral in the united states it's very popular and it is called the rear admiral like this gentleman here, he is a rear admiral because the woke, rainbow, gay military that is in the United States, rear admiral is the prominent position. You know, so that's the uh, the new kind of admiral that we have here in the United States, the rear admiral. Yes, I want to say that. Go ahead, Martin. Oh, no, no problem. Uh, uh, v, again, I, you've done it again, Alex. You always snooker me. Uh, <laughs> you're right again. I mean, I, uh, I have contribution to make, and it's that things are even worse than you say. 
because the one area where I, I, I don't disagree with any of your analysis, that's a terrifying thing. It's brilliant, spot on. But I'm close to these people, and I've studied the history of the late 1930s, and it's even worse. They are doing exactly what you have said. But they are not competent about even that. They are confused about it. They do not want a war. They are terrified of a war, and yet they are making a war inevitable. And we have seen this before. It is very clear, and there was even no secret at the time, that President Franklin Roosevelt did want to provoke war with Nazi Germany after the fall of France. Not until then, but from that point to December 1941, certainly after he was re-elected, the orders out to the United States Navy in the Atlantic uh, were deliberately escatory, shoot on sight, U-boat, German vessels in a time of peace between the United States and Nazi Germany. And the irony was, at that point, Hitler ordered his Navy not to fight back, not because he was virtuous in any way. He was the most evil bastard that ever walked the earth. But he wasn't a totally suicidal fool. And he could, knew he could not harm the United States because he did not have a Navy to do it. But once Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and sank the Pacific Fleet, Hitler thought the Japanese will finish off the United States for, for me because they have a great naval power the second in the world, which is about to become the first in the world, which fleetingly was the case. And he, of course, completely miscalculated the will of the American people and of President Roosevelt and of American productive capability, which buried them all. He completely missed that. It was his most fatal mistake, even bigger than invading Russia, because Russia could not have survived without the huge flood of food aid, especially in America and trucks that America sent it. And Russian leaders openly acknowledged this before the end of the war to Western leaders. But what you find is Dean Acheson, the same man who provoked to his incompetence the, the North Korean uh, Russian Soviet backed invasion of South Korea in 1950, provoked Japan into war in 1941 because he was the man who pushed through uh, uh, bullishly the total oil and uh, natural reserves embargo on Japan, uh, when, which was the point where, exactly as you said, Alex, Japan had been feeling the squeeze for a decade from the United for 20 years, in fact, since America had forced Britain to scrap the Anglo-Japanese Naval Treaty in 1921. It was remorseless under both Republican and Democratic administrations. But the moment of no return for the Japanese, when Hirohito approved the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he personally approved it, uh, to the Yamamoto plan, was when Dean Acheson put the embargo on. But FDR misread this. He, he was looking on the embargo. He, like the church, like everybody else in the West, they were subconscious racists. They underestimated Japan and the Japanese. They did not think they were remotely capable of doing what they were doing. FDR wanted a war against Germany. He did not want a war against Japan. Dean Acheson's incompetence pushed America into the wrong war. And then Hitler bailed him out by adding to, to, to the incompetence by declaring war in the United States and when he didn't have to. We see something very similar. And you see the same thing with the Neville Chamberlain government in 1939. Did they want Nazi Germany to attack the Soviet Union? Yes, definitely. Did Chamberlain want peace in Europe? The rest of Europe? Yes, definitely. Chamberlain was convinced he, he could recognize that Hitler was a gangster and a thug. He said so repeatedly. But he was convinced that Hitler respected him as a man. 
This was ludicrously woefully wrong. He was an idiot. So was Lord Halifax. The fact that these people are idiot, and you make another key point. Could they be pushing through these insane policies, destroying the morale of the United States Navy and Army with these mad transgender policies? Could they be pushing them through if they were serious about it? Well, the answer is yes, actually, they could be because they're idiots, because they are capable of they are in cognitive dissonance. Right. They do not think correctly at the same time. Uh, here, my advantage, I think, on all of you guys is I've met so many of these people face to face. And you keep thinking you're going to come up against a Kissinger, who certainly is a frighteningly brilliant, uh, extraordinary man, and also with a great sense of humor. Well, Stalin had one too. But this is not Stalin. This is not Kissinger. These people are clowns. Correct. And that exactly, and that's the most terrifying aspect of it all. So there is this dissonance there. Everything you say is true, Alex, including the wish to, I, I think, to distract with other wars and other enemies. And they want to, they're playing this double game with the Chinese. They think they are, but the Chinese see through it or they see a third level to it. So it backfires on them. When Janet Yellen and our, our Secretary of State, who are both morons, go to China and say, we are insulting you. We are demonizing you. Chinese citizens are being killed in hate crimes as a result of our policies across the United States. We are trying to ruin the Chinese economy. But we don't really mean any of it. They don't believe them. Because mm -hmm. they don't believe the words, they look at the actions. And you see the same thing with Chamberlain. They had endless discussions on what they needed to, to, to make an agreement with, uh, with Russia. And many things got in the way, good and bad. But the bottom one always was the Russians insist on transit of their troops through Poland and the Poles will not let them do it. Now, for anyone, as we all know, but you especially, Alex, and I, of course, because of, of our you from the roots of Europe and me from covering it for so many years, we both know that Polish-Russian ethnic hatreds are among the, remain to this day among the most intense on the planet. And therefore, the, uh, the British government... Hemmed and hard on this. Oh, we, we uh, 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 you know, Stalin's army isn't worth anything anyway, and they are, they are after all, communists. And even though Colonel Beck is a, is a bit unpleasant, and he, of course he was a totally racist dictator himself, right? Uh, the Poland, well, the, 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 the aggressions of Poland over 20 years are, are another story for another time. They treated the, the Ukrainian people worse than even they treated the Jewish people, which was saying something. But they flatly said, we refuse to let, even though Britain and France knew they could not survive with their enormous empires, unless they had Stalin on their side, they let Poland say to them, we refuse to let you make a military deal with Stalin. And they were so stupid that they let this work. This is the level of stupidity we see here again today. It is terrifying. And it is, unfortunately, I wish I could disagree, Alex, with any of you, with, with parts of your analysis. I would sleep better if I thought, oh, Alex was right here, but he was wrong here. There is still hope. No, there is no hope in your analysis. And your analysis is completely correct. And I, for, the, for the public record, I endorse it. I have to endorse it because you are warning the world.
And I think it's our duty to support you on this. And all I can add is the picture is even worse because these idiotic, these policies are being carried out exactly as you say for the reasons that you say, but they cannot even present them properly because they themselves are idiots and they have alienated the Chinese for life. And if they were to actually act towards Russia, act towards China and say, we actually mean to look, uh, 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 we don't want war with Russia and we'll prove it. We'll, uh, uh, we'll work for, uh, 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 we should have implemented the Minsk Agreement nine years ago, even if you can't agree them on those terms, let, we'll stop our flow of arms to Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky would stop in five seconds killing his own boys on those front lines if, if the United States told him to. There's mm. no way for him to go. Instead, they still let the, the tail wag the dog, just mm. as the British did in 1939. But the problem then, it's much bigger than then, because Britain was ultimately rescued by President Roosevelt and the United States. There is no one to rescue the United States today. Right. These people. The most dangerous thing with, uh, with a lot of these Western morons that we always have to remember, Marty, you've encountered these idiots. I've done some think tank work back in the early aughts with a prominent think tank. I know the exactly. Uh, there's an idiot with a man bun running around claiming to be an expert. You know the outfit I'm talking about. Um, I am astounded by how <laughs> stupid these morons are. I am astounded by the fact that they are have created in the last several decades massive amounts of echo chambers that they call themselves think tanks. These are just echo chambers. Yes. They literally believe their own bullshit. And that's what makes it so dangerous. They think they're playing a multi-level chess game. That they are managing every facet of it. And they're not. And the Chinese and the Russians and many countries are waking up to the fact that these guys are idiots. They are blithering noisemakers and their things are being ignored. And they got away with all of it. How did they get away with it? Because their financial system ran and dictated the world for so long. America's, you know, it's been said America's a rentier economy, it's a rent seeking economy. In other words, we've been living off the rent check that the dollar has been paying us as world reserve currency. And if you look at American investors, like look at the American investor class, oh my God, what do they have? I could talk to, and I got clients of mine that are billionaires, multi, multi, you know, uh, millionaires and whatnot. Every, you know, the ones in the West, they all have investment portfolios, investment portfolios. My clients that are outside of the U.S., they actually own companies and industry. The ones in the U.S. have paper. Yes. This is the this is the reality. The paper reality that the West has been living off of, like 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 a drug, uh, like like a hallucination, is finally starting to wear off, and the rest of the world is waking up to it. The narrative is failing colossally, gentlemen. I would like to um, follow up on some points that uh, both uh, Martin and Alex had just made, if I may, just like with regard to the question of like, where would the US maybe go next? Um, and fully agreeing with the idea in this Orwellian sense that the illusion of war or in the Baudrillardian sense, you know, the hyper reality of war can take the place of an actual war. Um, but at the same time, there's always this desire to put like 2000 or 3000 troops somewhere. And I would suggest that they're looking at northern Mexico for that right now. Um, and um, another thing to consider, and maybe just a devil's advocate or want something to entertain, if you would, 
um, that uh, in terms of the, the posture of the United States and what it's projecting with its low morale military, with uh, military leaders that don't look like the role, they don't seem fit for purpose. And I, I think that the, the hypothesis that certainly at this, at what we experience as the decision-making level, as Martin rightfully said, so many of these people are just blithering idiots. And yet at the same time, as Martin said, you've got people like Kissinger, Brzezinski and others that are actually some kind of brains in this operation as well. And they are quite brilliant. So maybe I would suggest that if they are involved in any of this posturing, as Alex has suggested, of appearing to look like saying to the world, like, we don't want a war. Um, from a, uh, a perspective of, of, and following up on the idea that you have the elites, the Western elites, their power in the world is shrinking. So this creates, like they turn the screws on their own population, as Alex is saying, it's, you know, austerity. As the empire collapses abroad, austerity increases at home. That's a very well-known formula. So, and following on that, then you're looking at instability situations. So when you look at institutions in a society that might fill in a power vacuum, when you have this elite system that is shaken or, or disturbed greatly, well, then now you're looking at what are the alternatives? Well, in the United States, they've already successfully destroyed, for example, the threat of, let's say, organized labor, yeah. right? Then when you have like a citizen voting populist movement, like on the Republican side around, let's say, Trump or something like this, then they're pushing this, the censorship. And as Alex and Martin were talking about very eloquently and better than I could put it, put, tightening those screws down on that end, right? So then you have, what are the other institutions? Well, if you have a strong military where the military institutions are respected, where the morale or belief in the institution is high, where having, um, uh, where the military is promoting based upon merit and based upon ability, as opposed to uh, this idiotic regurgitation, as Martin so uh, well put, pointed out, um, and this uh, mimicry and just, uh, you know, uh, 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 copy-paste kind of uh, talking points and copy-paste thoughts. Um, so maybe um, the, the defanging of the military is about reducing threat to um, to for domestic issues because without uh, let's say a population that can rise up and I'm not so certain that the uh, verdict is out on that but I would say that certainly they have taken the military and turned it into like a McDonald's type of job and and uh, it really doesn't have a lot more there's that it doesn't have the the uh, associations that it used to have so um, conclusively um, I would look at that from like almost a counterinsurgency perspective um, and that they're defanging or that they want to lower morale in the military and drive people away who are competent. I think that's what Alex is pointing out when he talks about people turning down um, admiral promotions, um, because these are people that are saying, I don't have confidence in this lacking merit or lacking vision or lacking credibility organization. Um, and I think that's significant and can't be overlooked or understated. So um, as an aside and a question mark, uh, I would like to see like a like a three year or five year up to current, just in general, just to kind of get a trend idea of U.S.-Russia trade 
and EU Russia trade. And I would like to see like who's hurting more right now um, in, connected to that and independently from that. And whether or not like Europe is like somehow, you know, um, the low hanging fruit. I uh, balance of my time to anyone else. Matthew. Matt, you're, you're muted. Mute. My, my internet has been just god-awful, and I do apologize for that. Uh, bad, Matt. This is bad. First, you're drinking hot water. Now the internet's bad. What's going on in Canada, bro? Yeah, I think it's <laughs> Canada. Um, and I know my mic is not so great on my phone, so I do apologize if my voice cuts out. Um, no, I mean, I... Joaquin brought up a, a lot of very interesting points. I mean, every every speaker so far is, has brought a lot to the table to chew on and to think about. Um, I, I mean, I, I found a, there's a lot of anomalies, and that's what was food for the mind is the anomalies. What doesn't fit according to a, a popular explanation for something. Um, one thing, you know, is that Mexico did just celebrate their independence, their Independence Day uh, last week. And in the, the military parade, uh, it was noted that there was a, a Chinese military unit invited to march with the Mexican army, which was a, a very, I found that a, a very interesting um, point. That and I, the I, Russians. And the Russians. And the Russians. Yes, wow. yes the Prail Brzezinski Brigade was present, yeah. Wow. Yes, yeah, so of, of course, the, 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 you know, both the right and the so-called left uh, inside of the Congress, you know, those pick, who are picking up on that or who are reading Epoch Times were flipping out that this is a, a part of the obvious plan for an invasion of <laughs> the United States by uh, by Mexico as a proxy for the Russian, the Ruskies and the Kami uh, Chinese, which is, you know, there, there's a lot going on behind the surface. We, we sort of get the cracks of it after thing, after decisions have been made. Um, and then we have to sort of like, you know, reverse engineer what the hell is going on. Uh, but I, I mean, obviously, Obrador is somebody who I, I, I generally think that he is on, on the, his heart's on the right side of history, but he's operating in a den of vipers yeah. in a structure which has been very much under foreign influence for decades, especially mm -hmm. since Portillo stood up against the, the vulture funds and the imperialists back in the, in the early 80s and called for a debt moratorium and, a, and a, an industrial renaissance for Latin America. And, and Mexico was really punished heavily through speculative attacks and everything else for the next 30 plus years against the peso and the Mexican people. But despite that, there is this, this tradition, and I'm sort of saying this partially because Mex uh, Marty is going to be giving a class uh, to the Rise and Tide Foundation this Sunday on the Anglo-French uh, destruction of Mexico going back to the 19th, 19th century. So if anybody wants to check that out, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what he's going to have to say. But the, the spirit of Benito Juarez, who was, a, who was somebody who was um, very much cut from the same cloth as Abraham Lincoln, is has still remained alive despite all of the suppression and attacks that, that Mexico has suffered over the, the century. Um, so there's something there that Obrador, I mean, I, he definitely had a very positive relationship with Trump. You know, there were programs that involved um, creating sort of a, a new deal uh, with Trump offering to organize. I mean, he organized something in 2019, 2020 for a, a Marshall plan for, uh, for Southern Mexico that would have involved building high-speed rail electrification that also would have benefited other neighboring countries to, to Mexico's south. 
Um, that all got put into the trash bin uh, the second the current regime came into power in Washington. Um, so <clears throat> I think that between uh, Portillo's attacks against the the Monroe Doctrine in its worst forms, uh, being uh, having made a being brought back online that calls for you know taking the worst elements of of Teddy Roosevelt's uh, big stick diplomacy um, in the form of of a new version of United Fruit Companies like raping and pillaging Latin America. That's 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 something that that Obrador has spoken very very. Uh, eloquently and repeatedly against. And I think he's been trying to situate Mexico in a position where it could break free from the NSSM 200 policy of Kissinger that specifically targeted Mexico back in the 70s. That's right. Sure, that has to now be submissive to depopulation as the new foreign policy agenda for the United States that Kissinger outlined it. At blood, in blood curdling, curdling, curdlingly? Blood curdling. Yeah. Curdling, yes. It curdles the blood, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm a writer, right? Eh? Uh, so this, this is, I mean, Kissinger called literally for the full club of Rome package and he was working very closely. We talked at the beginning of this, of this broadcast, so it's worth repeating it. He was working very closely with leading figures like Alexander King, like Aurelio Piche, like David Rockefeller from the Neo-Malthusian agenda who, and David Rockefeller was the person who was overseeing the bankrolling of the club of Rome from one of his estates, um, in, uh, in 1968. And this, is, this was brought into uh, the World Economic Forum in their 1973 summit that brought Aurelio Pichet to present his Club of Rome computer, um, computer models for you know, managing and, and foreseeing the future um, through this new type of advanced, swanky computer linear extrapolation technology that could think so much, so much better than humans could about the future by just plugging in these very selected data sets and chosen variables that were then extrapolated into some imaginary future uh, crisis point around. Wow, that reminds me a lot of the, of the pandemic. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing, right? They, they, and it's the same thing for the, the, the longer uh, green eco crisis that these guys brought online of, you know, man-made global warming. It, it all involves taking select data sets whether it's CO2 that you tie to temperature or whether it's uh, something, and I know this is streaming to YouTube, so we can't say certain things, but certain select data sets that could invoke fear in people um, that, that uh, could be used in regards to a, 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 an imaginary thing floating around that we should be afraid of <clears throat> that uh, would justify then actions from governments that would conveniently have the effect of increasing tyranny and reducing the population um, of the earth through a variety of techniques. Um, so it's all about the effects. That's always been the desire. So Mexico has been subjected to this, this policy of, of Kissinger and the Club of Rome for a long time. So if, there are 15 other countries that Kissinger laid out in his NSSM 200 report. And although China was not um, listed directly as one of those 15 countries, Ethiopia was, Egypt was, that at the time wished to go with the Japanese model of industrial development, you know, that that was the big thing at the time. How could how could we, as former as as abused nations, leap into the modern age by using what works of the U.S. experience, of the Japanese experience? How could we do that ourselves? And people like Bobby Kennedy, when you read his his, his campaign platforms in 1967-68, that's what he was going to assist with, just like his brother was doing earlier in 1962-63. 
And that had to be stopped. And people like John Diefenbaker in Canada, the, the prime minister who was ousted in a, in a Rhodes Scholar run coup the same year that JFK was killed in the, in, in the U.S. He was also for helping these, these former colonies of the British Empire access high quality uh, technology, nuclear power, advance, you know, make sure that the money that we give would not be would not just be sent towards um, IMF conditionalities and, and structural readjustments of their economies, but rather or appropriate technologies, which is which was the name given to the Kissinger approved form of, of lending after the in the 70s and Maury Strong. But it was it, it, these these real nation builders who were ousted in the 60s wished they, 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 they understood that this money had to go towards large scale mega projects, industrial development, and that had to be ended. So Mexico has been trying to get back to revive. I mean, there's been an effort, uh, mostly um, it's, it's been, you know, in the, in the, in the back doors that people haven't really been seeing too much of this, but now it's, it's burst onto the scene increasingly. And I think that again, Mexico is positioning themselves to be in a situation where they will be partners with this multipolar alliance of pro-economic, pro-industrial development as the current system continues to sink and that's dominated by Wall Street and, and London. But we'll see where it goes. Very well said. Here, here. I guess uh, as we're coming to the uh, um, uh, end of the program, um, uh, Joaquin, Alex, Craner, Martin, any, anything you guys want to add? Yes, I, I, I just like <clears throat> this um, situation with with the United States and its uh, pushes uh, against. I mean, I guess we're streaming, but people do say Russia now, don't they? On YouTube, you can say Russia now on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I was going to say, you know, the country east of Poland, but um, you have. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> In the country east of Poland, well, this this crisis, um, Poland is is doing something right now with its relationship with Ukraine, and it is looking like they're they are doing something, and they're making it look very heavily like the relationship is souring. And um, others have pointed out that well, this is merely just an election stunt in Poland um, because of there's enough sentiment in Polish society that's actually not happy with all of the whatever that Poland has done for Ukraine, uh, which is a very big question mark, you know, for me about then what, because, you know, the, the, the presumptions, the built-in presumptions into the, you know, this, uh, I would say, explaining away of this rift between Poland and, and, and Ukraine as being merely um, an election stunt um, you know, begs the question of why so many Polish voters are opposed to this ongoing support for Ukraine. And, and so it's, it's that part of the question is, is kind of left unaddressed in this theory. Um, so um, I'm entertaining that theory. But at the same time, you know, what about just um, they are having problems with Ukraine because Ukraine is losing and while victory has a thousand fathers, defeat is but a bastard. And they would like to, you know, extricate themselves from, remove themselves, you know, do like a Trudeau and let the fecal matter, you know, run downhill. And um, I, I'm convinced almost that we have to entertain that Poland may actually be trying and, and could 
could be engaging in backdoor diplomacy with the Russians even. And certainly it has been said outright by Ukrainians who don't have a lot of credibility on this subject, but a broken clock once in a while, at least twice a day, will give you the right time. And um, I, I think maybe there's something to this. Definitely the, the Polish, the Poles are, are very unimpressed by the uh, the blatant uh, Nazism, which um, everyone kind of knew it, but you weren't supposed to put it that up front. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, in Canada, we just had the, uh, you know, the whole Canadian parliament do a, a crazy salute and applause for in honor of this SS Galatia division. I mean, you're right there on the ground. You're in Canada. What's the what's the buzz? Like, what's going on with this? Oh, it's a total disaster. It's it's train. The Speaker of the House just resigned. A Good. Oh, is this, is yeah. that official? Yeah, it's official. He was thrown under the bus. I mean, he had somebody had to take the blame. Um, not Trudeau. <laughs> Trudeau. No, I mean, and everyone's probably had a chance to see Trudeau's so-called weak apology. Uh, saying what an embarrassment this is, but he still somehow found a way to twist it to blame it all on Russian propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, but yeah, this is this is like it's a total train wreck of a disaster, and, and a good it's a good train wreck. It's a useful one, and the Polish ambassadors freaked out about this demand. I mean, he's the I think the loudest of all the ambassadors is the Polish. Um, I mean, and despite that, Canada's come out. You know, we've put it nine billion dollars towards the, U the Ukraine meat grinder, and we're we're inviting. Um, more, more money printing towards that, that disaster, despite all the evidence that's showing that this is, uh, this is going nowhere. It's, it's going in reverse. And the, even the polls were like the biggest cheerleaders not that long ago are also saying like that we're, Ukraine is a drowning man and, uh, we're not going to help. Use those anyway. words, in fact, that was the words that they used that yeah. Ukraine's a drowning man. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, I was thinking to myself that this whole entire Galician Nazi SS Waffen SS member that the salute and praise and adulations that were poured upon him. I don't think that was an accident. I think he was put there on purpose. What do you guys think? Because you gotta understand, like in Western oh, Ukraine, you got you got the Banderistas yeah, yeah, salivating yeah. on getting a piece of, of Poland. And now you have a Polish Ukrainian rift going on. <clears throat> Look, there's no honor among thieves. I don't expect the U.S. to foment something between Poland and and you. It's possible. Who knows? Chaos. No, it, it's it's all very. That's a very well conceived possibility. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Alex Craner, what do you think? Um, well, okay. So, I, with regards to the to the standing ovation to the Nazi in the uh, in the Canadian Parliament, of course, there's no chance that that was a mistake. Yeah, that was that may have been that that may have been a mistake uh, by some of the people who were applauding there, who didn't really know why they were applauding, but whoever <laughs> organized that knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they, there's, you know, like there's no, this is Canadian parliament, right? This is not like a pub around the corner where people right. just do shit and, 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 and say stuff. It's like, you know, these, the list of attendees and guests uh, for sure has been, re they, they sent a car for this man. They knew who they were bringing there. And then when you, when, when you include in your speech that this hero 
was fighting against Russia, how can you not, not work out that he was on the wrong side of history, that man? So they, they played it, and then now they're doing the typical, oh, we made mistakes, lessons learned, uh, we have to move forward, not backward, let's not play political games, let's not point finger, fingers, you know, always the same thing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I have to say that in spite of the fact that in the, the discussion we had before, which would imply that things are really bad and that we should be maybe pessimistic, we have to always remember that, you know, we've never been at this point in history before. We've mm. never had inter We've never had conversations like this. Um, you know, I... Um, <clears throat> I, I lived through the outbreak of war in uh, in the former Yugoslavia. And back then, you know, this was the early 1990s. We didn't have the internet. You know, we really did depend on newspapers and radio and television for information. But that's not longer the case. And so, you know, um, there, there are several things that I've observed over the war in Ukraine, which was, you know, one of the two absolutely major... Uh, projects for the globalists in the last four years. You know, the first one was the pandemic, and the second one was the uh, the breakup of Russia. And uh, you know, as soon as they managed to coax Russia into uh, invading Ukraine, which they set up as a trap, uh, they immediately uh, instituted. Uh, a very draconian regime of censorship. They cut off all the Russian sources, RT, Sputnik. Uh, you know, all the voices from Russia were were forced uh, out of the out of the scene. Um, they, they they started. You know, they they escalated even the Russophobic narratives. We had we had. Uh, we had uh, in in theaters. We had uh, mm, recitals of of, of Russian uh, composers cancelled in Italy, and uh, some universities cancelled their classes on Russian literature. We were, you know, they really intended for us to hate Russia, to close ranks, and be ready for a major war. They really wanted a, a, a world war between two, uh, you know, monolithic blocks, all of society conflict. Didn't work out that way at all. And I, I, I remember within the first two weeks of the war, they ran a poll in France asking public opinion how they perceive the, perceive the conflict. And... 57% of the French people, ordinary French people that they asked, and this is an official French poll by the, uh, by the by, uh, uh, IPOF, Institute for the Research of Public, uh, public uh, Opinion. 57% of ordinary French people believed Russian justifications for war. Okay? Um, so that was within two weeks. Uh, I have a friend uh, who works in for NATO in one of the one of the countries in the Balkans, 
and uh, she told me that they are that that NATO is monitoring the public mood in 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 among NATO member nations very uh, closely, for the very obvious reason, you know, like they're they're eager to you know. Uh, to, to, to find cohesion among the population, willingness to go to war, and they're not finding it. So in the in the in the nation of East, in the nations of Eastern Europe, and I'm talking about uh, March of this year, yeah, so like a, about six months ago, uh, it was about three out of four people who sympathized with the Russian side. NATO's own polling. This is not public. This this I know from a person who told me who works on these things and mm. among the nations mm. like france spain italy belgium it's about two out of three wow. so two out of three people sympathize with the russian side and then i myself came across a number of uh, unofficial online polls on twitter and on youtube and i you know like i looked at the polls that had you know respond responses in the tens of thousands of people and, uh, you know, accounts that were not obviously pro-Russian, right? And uh, the responses that were favorable to Russia were between 70 and 80%. So one of the questions was, uh, who's responsible for the war in Ukraine? Russia, West. 80% of the people said West. And then uh, there was a question, like, if you had to choose between Putin and Zelensky, who would you choose? I think it was 75% of people, Putin. And, you know, several, so anyway, you know, like long story short, uh, they didn't get what they wanted. You know, they, they weren't able to uh, engineer the consent for, for uh, World War III against Russia. Yeah. It all kind of dissipated on them and they can't seem to uh, get the real deal going. And the proxy thing that they have going, they're losing it, Right. And so um, I'm very optimistic because even though at the, at the level of the official institutions, things are absolutely dismal. And at the level of, uh, you know, uh, corporate mainstream media, things are dismal. Yeah. There's a new element in this, in this social and political equation, and that is the people, the ordinary people. And I think that this is where they were unprepared. They, uh, they didn't count with this or they didn't foresee that uh, the reactions would be completely unpredictable and, and that they could not control them. And so now they're in a panic. They want to they censor. They, they, they need to attribute everything to Russia's malign influence and propaganda and all this. But, you know, these are... These are all the reaction after the, uh, you know, after the horses have, have bolted from, from the barn. Yeah. It's too late. They lost. So now I think that we have, to, we have to realize that we are winning, but we have to also realize that we haven't won. Yes. We have to, we have to keep pressing. Right. And yeah. we have to, I think, actively think about what it is that we want to replace the current order because the current order is fraudulent it's uh, pathogenic it's uh, it's probably the worst thing that that humanity has gone through since the since the days of the roman uh, empire and obviously we need to we need something better going forward and i think that from where we are 
it shouldn't be difficult to improve. But nevertheless, you know, we can't uh, <laughs> allow ourselves to be um, misled into another iteration, in a, into another reincarnation of the same old, same old that's been, you know, perpetuating itself in various forms uh, uh, since for, for the last 2000 years. Yeah. So we need to fix the money. We need to engineer um, uh, certain incentives out of the society that are that are leading to the emergence of uh, oligarchies, which then become dominant in societies and which then uh, lead the development, the social, economic, political development. So we have the opportunities to do all those things. We just have to really, really look into the mm-hmm. the building blocks of of uh, modern societies and make sure that they're built. Uh, so that we get what we want mm-hmm. out of life and not what uh, what the what what the higher ups the degenerates that are ruling the world at the moment think up for us mm-hmm. yeah that, i think that's the most important thing because obviously the current system is collapsing it will collapse there's no avoiding the inevitability of the collapse of this current system because it was made to collapse. It was made to become a bubble, which would be triggered as all bubbles can be triggered at at some expedient time um, for a collapse. And and as much as you, you can sort of kick the can down a road, down the road at another QE operation or some other thing to sort of stretch it a little bit longer. There's only so much stretching that can happen when your food process, the, the means of production are breaking down the means of, of supporting Ultimately, there is a physical reality that justifies the existence of the money, the debt, the derivatives, other things you build onto the system. So it's going to collapse. Yeah. And will we get a system which is even worse, equal to or worse than the, the logic of, of oligarchism that brought us to this current collapse? Or are we going to get something much more in harmony with um, what humans actually need and require and should want if we're mature. And that's the problem, I think, with human beings. Not the problem, the beautiful thing, the problem, whatever you want to call it, is that we have free will and we could choose, unlike animals, you know, like bees know that they need pollen, they need bee things, and that makes the bee happy. And plants, they get, they need the sunlight, they want that. They, they want the sunlight, the water, the, and they will grow, you know, um, they will do what plants do. And um, and that's all good, but they don't have will. They can't choose to you know wake up and say, "I identify with being a cat today," says the bee, or the you know they, they can't choose to try to be what they aren't. Whereas human beings, because we have free will, we can we we're we're species of ideas that shape our identity of ourselves, our internal universe, and the, and what we think of as the external universe that we're trying to make sense of. So we can free, freely choose to be stupid. And we could choose to want, I could maybe want heroin instead of water. You know, a lot of people do go, go to East Hastings in Vancouver. A lot of people there are, are, are in a wretched, terrible situation because they're addicted to fentanyl. That's like every drug is now legal in British Columbia. They want to do this all across Canada now. And it's like a dark age zone of, you don't want to get out of your car driving through these zones, you know? And, and these are people who would, if they were, if you were going to create a, a census or a survey, they would mostly select more fentanyl or heroin instead of water or food. Um, so the, the thing of like what makes a human being a mature integrated human being is do, do we have the emotional development which has grown with our intellectual development and our body 
right? Because our body's going to grow like a no matter what. But do the emotional state and the and the mental state also grow in tandem, or are do you have like people walking around as you know driving around with trophy wives, you know, in their in their sixties uh, in a midlife crisis because they have an infantile ego and they're always right. chase some potion of rejuvenation without accepting the fact that no human beings you're, you're you're getting old right like we're we all we all have this path to go through and um and i think that that's part of the consumer society right so we're we're living in a, in a world which has been now s- several generations in <clears throat> by this social engineering experiment that really went hard on the baby boomers that flooded that whole generation with psychedelic drugs nihilism uh, nihilistic literature into the universities, you know, Frankfurt School wokest educational reforms into the universities that really got underway even afterwards. But the drugs were big, and they didn't know what the world was that was that was going to shit all around them. And their friends were coming back in body bags from Vietnam. And why were we in Vietnam? And why were my leaders who were heroes getting killed? You don't know. And so your the young people were were jumping into escapism, and and you know the the CIA and MK Ultra were more than happy to provide abundant drugs for all of these young people going into this, uh, this, you know, create my own fantasy land. Reality is too scary. So I'm going to just make my own reality says Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley and uh, doors of perception. You know, I, I'll, I'll create more, more psychedelic doors to appreciate that fake reality. I want to manufacture. And these then became the leaders of corporations and governments in the transatlantic zone in the eighties and the nineties. And you're wondering like, how did our society make so many stupid decisions on everything that, on everything, which has only made life worse for everybody. Um, and, and you can't answer that question if you don't look at culturally how are the, the understanding of what we want and what we need was so that um, it, was, it was made ambiguous. Um, mm-hmm. So people wanted things they didn't need. And, uh, and I think if you just look today, well, we have, let's say we have 8 billion people. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Let's say it's that number. There's there's certain objective criteria to what is needed for all of those eight billion people to live dignified lives. There's a, a physical. You you need water. You need food. You need a, some inspiration, job opportunities. You need these things. They, these are this is what Franklin Roosevelt laid out as as his four freedoms that he saw as being the the um, manifestation of the ideals of the American Revolution for all of humanity. And the four freedoms, you know, the, the freedom from want, the freedom from fear of secret police, the freedom of, of conscience to worship as you see fit. I uh, forget the last one. That that was something which was supposed to not just be nice words to get elected, but rather like an active organizing force of the UN Charter, of the, the basis upon which the, the IMF, the World Bank, and other Bretton Woods institutions were, were supposed to be like operating under. But we all know that didn't that didn't go very long. The, the death cultists took over over his dead body. All of the people who thought in those terms that he was thinking were uh, called red commie traitors and, and destroyed. Some were killed, like, you know, and some were just had their, their careers annihilated. JFK tried to revive this in his own time, this principle of an international new deal. And I think we see that Russia, China, uh, the, the multipolar alliance with the Belt and Road Initiative, in, in my assessment of history, this has picked up the torch that was left by Franklin Roosevelt for internationalizing this, this idea that economics should be based upon benefiting all participants instead of just uh, a few trying to manage the scarcity in a world of diminishing returns. 
and creating abundance instead of scarcity. So I'll just end my, my remarks and then I got to go. With uh, Sergey Lavrov, he made a really good speech not that long ago, a, a year ago, saying what will be the identity for the Russians going forward. And he's like, there's there's, there's a, a lack of cohesive identity, you know, and, and he's making the point China has a 5,000-year-old identity. They've got Confucianism. Um, there's there's a certain lack still of like what will be the, the the identity for Russians. And he said like the best thing would be to organize it around problem solving and leaping outside of the limits to growth. And he was very clear in this in this beautiful speech that that should be the, the key driving uh, force of our identity is we are the people who leap outside of the limits to growth and make discoveries. That should be what we we focus on. And I think that that, that way of thinking applies to every culture, regardless of what whatever you, whatever religion you're from or, or or whatever. That if you that that's a universal, and you will right. you will value the right things, right? We will value. Uh, building infrastructure instead of building casinos. We will value all the good things that we should value if we have that core identity we survive. So I, I uh, hope that's the case. No, it's, it's great. But the thing is that uh, us Americans have the Russians beat when it comes to identity because we have multiple identities. Every day <laughs> we're inventing new genders. Uh, we, we have creative ways of different types of sodomy. I mean, it's, it's amazing what we offer the world. It really is. Martin, uh, uh, 30 seconds, last comments. I'm going to give everybody 30 seconds. Uh, so, Martin, we'll start with you, 30 seconds. Uh, I'm trying to corral you as best as we can with 30 seconds. You're like this incredible uh, dynamic. I would uh, – uh, a, a point uh, from me is I don't think there is a plot in the Biden administration or the top levels of the military to destroy the credibility of the U.S. armed forces. They are doing that, absolutely. Yeah. And they actually are so benighted and crazed, they think they are improving the credibility of the armed forces. Mm -hmm. This goes back to our key point, Matt always says, about the establishment of the new universalist religion. The new universalist religion is mi uh, minimum... Uh, uh, destruction of free speech, uh, oppression, of course, but also total free trade, total f freedom of movement so that slave laborers and human trafficking and drug trafficking can go unimpeded everywhere. And this will bring automatic human happiness. Cordell Hull believed in the gospel of free trade way back in the 1930s. FDR Secretary of State for 12 years. FDR didn't let him go too far with it, but it was ensconced in the belief systems of everyone who had followed Woodrow Wilson. But another key element here is these idiots really believe that if you open the military to the talents of transgenders, as, as well as people coming in from all over the world who are not culturally or politically or, or spiritually acclimatized to being Americans, you will bring in talent rather than instability and discord. They are destroying the American armed forces exactly as you guys have said and as Alex said, but they really believe they are not and they cannot believe there is an alternative way in the world and they cannot let the Russians or the Chinese or Viktor Orban or any country, they, they reject Sam Huntington. They reject the, the plurality of civilizations. And this is at the bottom of everything. Not only do they have this insane system which has collapsed and is totally unsustainable in the United States and Europe, but they will not rest until they have imposed it on everyone else. And this is what makes world war inevitable. Very well said. Alex Kreiner, go for it. Okay, well, I, I, I hope, I really hope that Martin is wrong. So do I. 
and uh, I hope that uh, the world war is inevitable. Evit is that a word? I don't think it is. We'll, we'll make it one. I think that it's avoidable. Uh, I think that uh, uh, in addition to the Western public having been sufficiently uh, politically awakened that they're no longer as easy to manipulate and deceive into another world war, we have also extraordinarily sophisticated adversaries in, uh, in the Russian and Chinese leadership uh, that, are, uh, that are systematically pulling the support from under these uh, Western oligarchs. And it seems to me that they know exactly what they're doing they're, you know, like they're repeatedly uh, declining to fall into cheap provocations. Uh, they are repeatedly uh, managing to maneuver around uh, major unpredictable escalations. And they are building bridges with key um, partners and allies around the world. Like, for example, take the example of Turkey. Uh, Britain was uh, working on a grand coalition of Great Britain, Poland, Ukraine, and Turkey in a kind of, a, you know, uh, Crimea War 2.0 uh, agenda. And it, it fell apart. Why? The, you know, the, the Russians were skillfully managing their uh, relationship with Turkey, and Turkey sim simply didn't... Um, take part of that uh, alliance. And so, you know, um, militarily, uh, they are a worthy adversary. In, in terms of uh, arsenal and armament, I think that Russians are now ahead of the West. In terms of skill, they're also ahead of the West. You know, they just got... Uh, what, 18 months worth of intense training. Uh, they saw how the West wages war. Uh, they have, you know, tightened their processes and their training and their logistics and everything. They have, they have improved uh, over the last 18 months. And I think there's no taste for war in the West. I think that even if somebody launched a nuclear weapon, I, I don't think it's a 100% it's a certainty that it would instantly escalate all the way and then if it did you know the the western oligarchies would be would be instantly incinerated that would right. be the end of them so the, the, a, i hope it it can be i i hope the world war three is world war three is evitable yeah I, I agree with you alex i'll tell you right now a quick little snippet i've said this on a story multiple times one of the clients i've had he was you know he was in the nuclear forces in the united states and then when he retired out of the nuclear forces, he went to work within the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So he was the top guy uh, keeping the uh, nuclear power plants, the few remaining nuclear power plants in the United States from going into meltdown. Right, And he came up with the term that the way the, the nuclear power plants are run in the United States is a term that he coined as known as run to failure, run to failure. There's no way, you know, it, it, our our plants are in dilapidated shape. But one of the points he made about our nuclear, our nuclear arsenal, right? I mean, the, the latest nuclear missile that the United States has, the Trident Three, right, or the Minuteman Two, right? That was created in 1973. Our nuclear forces are so dilapidated. Yes. One of the things that he's told me, he would be surprised that if even 20 percent of them are fieldable, and that's a high number. 
if even 20% of them are fieldable. So we might have like five, you know, 4,798 nukes, but only a fraction of them could be even fieldable. The, the, a lot of the ICBM batteries are in such a state of disrepair and, and, and low maintenance. The guys who are trained to maintain these ICBMs, they're either retired or gone, and they don't have the sufficient talent to maintain it. So if Russia were to launch off a couple of hypersonic SAR Mount 2s in the United States, there's no response. That's the scary thing. Few, there, there's some brilliant minds in the Pentagon that know this. They know where the limits are. But the deranged nut jobs, these neocons who live in these echo chambers thinking that we're the greatest economy in the world, we're the most powerful military, those guys are clueless. And that's what they – we have the stupid idiots in charge. Joaquin, go for it, brother. Um, your description of the nuclear program sounds a lot like NASA's moon program. Very strange. <laughs> I won't comment further. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm, uh, following up on before we started our summaries, the last kind of conversation, but in my 30 seconds, I would say that, uh, they can't, uh, quantitatively move quantitative easing move forever. Um, of course. So then what, and, uh, how does that look like? So it's like default, right? That, uh, restructuring default. Um, what are the themes I'm looking at? Uh, oversaturation. But also, you know, we think about uh, labor-saving technologies applied. So you're looking really at a crisis of overproduction. If you need to produce things that are profitable, who's making them? Not people. Who's your consumers? People. So they have to buy it at some price. Without labor, though, that price is very low. But that doesn't work out for oligarchies. So we have a fundamental disagreement here. I'm looking at issues like the, you know, law of diminishing returns, declining rate of profit, things like that, and driving these uh, crises, investment into the means of destruction, expending through these old stockpiles, trying to get military spending going in some way. I don't think they really know. I think that, in, it, it, I think Martin makes a very compelling case about some of the blindness and stupidity, which is driving some of these inherited policies, and then everyone's kind of winging it based upon stupid policies that they've inherited. So even intelligent people trying to come into the situation are going to have to sort through so much administrative or inherited crap that it's, it, Martin makes a very good case. At the same time, I have to say, um, I hope he's wrong. So um, and uh, <laughs> and, um, I, and I, I, but, but it, and not in contrast to this, but as, as Matt is saying, and as Alex is saying, this is fundamentally about the, the real miscalculation is about underestimating people power, the power of pluralism in the real sense, not this hyper-reality of pluralism, not all of these fake endowments and ph philanthropists, but real pluralism, which what we're doing right here in this forum, uh, real civil society. And I think that as Alex inferred greatly or said outright, that the internet in many ways drove this, and he referenced his experience in wartime Yugoslavia with the limited news sources and how that drove people. And I will add probably into more of an internecine conflict than was necessary. So um, I'm optimistic. You're, you're muted V. Oh God, I did it again. 
Martin's Martin's wearing off on me. I'm I'm muting myself more often. These days. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the only one doing it this time. <laughs> I want to thank all you guys for uh, for doing this roundtable and especially the way the things are going in this world. Love to have you guys on more frequently, at least once or twice a month, just doing a roundtable just to catch up. Audience loves it, and I'll have all your websites and everything in the description box so people can follow you. Uh, folks, thank you all for listening in, and have a wonderful day. Again, re-listen to this broadcast, share it with your friends and family, let the word get out there. And thank you so much for joining in. Thank you all for listening. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye-bye.